You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be worshiping with you guys. Uh, this is turning to be uh, turning to turning into a uh, beautiful Memorial Day weekend. So, a lot of fun in store for a lot of you guys, and I hope that all of you have some big, juicy, delicious cheeseburger waiting for you somewhere. So. Um, <laughs> I was uh, talking earlier, and I was, I was reading holidays with somebody, and I said, Memorial Day, it's a solid 3.5 if it wasn't for the lukewarm potato salad, so get up to 3.8, so. But hey, we, are, uh, we just finished our hospitality series. We're jumping into New Testament epistles, something we do every summer, and uh, we're picking up where we left off from last year, which is, uh, puts us at 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, if you're familiar with this passage, uh, you probably love it. It's a beautiful passage describing the resurrection, the gospel, the future, and uh, for many people, this is one of their favorite parts of the whole Bible. And uh, we're going to be spending some time in the first few verses that focus on the gospel, and that's going to be our topic for this morning. What is the gospel? What does it mean for us? How do we uh, possess it? And there's a lot of reasons why this is worth reflecting on, Uh, but I, I certainly think one of them is that... Uh, many people, myself included, are very keenly aware of a, a plurality that exists within the Christian world. Uh, most people know that many Christians look differently than them, uh, and they might at times even feel like they have more uh, uncommon, uh, more uh, dislimer things and similar things um, with supposedly fellow Christians. There's obviously a number of different denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, uh, I also find that Christian uh, personalities affect things. Some people are very truth-driven. Some people are very justice-driven. Uh, we even have different favorite authors. Some people love Joel Olstein. Others love Tim Keller or Watchman Nee, folks like this. And uh, strangely, these are all things that add to the diversity and plurality within the Christian world. And a very worthwhile question to ask is, what do Christians have in common, if anything? And uh, this is where the gospel message comes into play, that this is uh, the core thing that is supposed to unite us together. The word gospel itself is uh, not a recent invention. It uh, wasn't made by Protestants or evangelicals. Uh, It's not even novel to the New Testament. Uh, It's something that was actually a a very well-established word in the first century. And it was used uh, very often to describe the foreign affairs that would happen between different countries. And you might have one country invade and conquer another country, and they would end up sending back a good news or a gospel of their victory and the peace that they won. The most well-known uh, use of the word gospel comes uh, from about the time of Jesus' birth, and it is found in a little um, obscure inscription in the middle of Turkey. And let me, let me read it to you. It says this, Providence has given us Caesar Augustus, sending him as a savior that he might end all wars, and arrange all things. And since Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors, since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that that came about by reason of him. Very provocative language. In fact, if you're familiar with the New Testament, uh, many of those words and terms will be familiar. Caesar is described as uh, ushering in a new era of history. In fact, there was a whole calendar system that began because of him. And so you can imagine, what does it mean for New Testament authors to talk about the gospel? 
or Jesus as Savior, or Jesus as ushering in a new era of history. It would have obviously pitted Jesus against the cultural systems of his time, even Jesus against Caesar. And it's this context that Paul writes to us now to the Roman colony of Corinth, who would have been very familiar with this type of language. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7, and it should be printed in your bulletins. You're welcome to read along or listen along. This is starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and pray for the next few minutes that it would be to us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be discussing the topic of the gospel, and uh, as much as I just said the gospel has roots in the New Testament in the first century, it goes back even further than that, uh, back into the story and worldview of the Old Testament. And uh, there was a number of people that used the word gospel, but the terms and concepts come up uh, most often in uh, the book of Isaiah. And here, Isaiah will oftentimes talk about a gospel or good news that he's sending to Israel. And with this message, he'll say things like, here is your God, Israel, or our God reigns. And so when the New Testament writer, Apostle, the Apostle Paul, is talking about the gospel, he's drawing from a very rich context, both the, the world of his own time and also back into the story and heritage that he has uh, as a Jewish Christian. We're going to be focusing on a few things. What is the gospel? Uh, mainly the gospel is a message. What is the content of this message itself, and then what do we do with it when we get it? So let's start with things in that order. What is this gospel message? And I'll read to you the first couple of verses of our passage. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which we are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The word gospel itself is oftentimes translated as good news, and it simply just means that it's a kind of news that happens to be good. And here Paul is saying that it's something that needs to be preached and it needs to be received, and this may be uh, a little too obvious to us, but there needs to be somebody who's going to talk about this gospel report, and there has to be somebody who's going to hear it in some way. But if we look a little deeper, we see that the language Paul here is, is using is more than just telling us the obvious, but he's saying that this gospel message that he's giving the folks is actually passing down an intact body of knowledge. Paul is talking about something like tradition here. He's saying, I'm part of this gospel tradition, and I want you to be part of it too, and I'm going to bring you into it in some way. And he's picturing that people will tell their stories about what God's doing in the world, and then other people are going to hear it and be captured by the story and keep passing the story down. You might wonder if Paul invented this idea himself, a gospel tradition, and he certainly did not. He's getting this from his Jewish heritage, from the way God did things in the Old Testament. 
And what God would oftentimes do is he would have a report about something he's done, whether it's Exodus or bringing back the exiles, things like this. And he would have folks share it, and then those people, the hearers, would become the new stewards of it, and they would pass it down to other people. You see this in Psalm 78, where it's the, this tradition is described as taking place actually in the family, where parents would tell their children about the mighty deeds of God and his good character, and the children would grow up and to be stewards of this story and to pass it on to other people. Or you see it happening in the context of the local church, like Deuteronomy 16, where Israel is receiving instructions for what they're supposed to do when they occupy the promised land. And they're going to come in, it says, and they're going to take some of the earth and they're going to bring it to the priest. And then they're going to say, a wandering Aramean was my father. On and on, the story. And so the story is expressed in our families, it is expressed in our local churches. And we embrace it and become stewards of it and share it on to others. When I was reading this, it struck me that uh, this might be a little more than an elaborate game of telephone. If you don't know what telephone is, it's that uh, fun game where you get a line of people, and one person on one end will whisper something in the ear of another person, and they keep whispering down the line until you get to the end, and then the person at the end is supposed to kind of say what they heard. And uh, it never ends up being the original story. And uh, I was always a uh, telephone disruptor. I loved spreading misinformation in the telephone game. And, uh, but, you know, why, why isn't something like this happening in our uh, uh, situation right now? Why, how do we know that this gospel thing that was started with Jesus has been transmitted correctly to us over all these years? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, this was a problem that uh, other people wrestled with, including the second century theologian, Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was a, a pretty uh, hard-knock kind of guy. And he was in competition with these people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were claiming to be Christian, but they weren't really at all. And, and he was um, saying, hey, my beliefs come from the Bible. But the Gnostics were also saying, hey, my ideas come from the Bible also. So where does that put us? And so Irenaeus came up with this idea. He said, uh, well, my ideas can be traced back all the way to the apostles, and yours can't. He called it tradition. And so what that meant was that there was these bishops who had received these, this gospel news, this gospel tradition, and they were publicly preaching it, and that it had been inculcated in the church practices, and this was a public thing that everybody saw and knew about, and so Irenaeus is saying, hey, I knew that guy, who knew that guy, who knew that guy, and that guy knew Jesus, and it goes back, and the Gnostics weren't able to do this, and so interestingly enough, the gospel tradition was preserved in the institutions of the church, and this gives us a clue to our original problem of what do we do with all these kinds of Christians and what do we uh, have in common? And interestingly, I think one of the answers is that we certainly have the gospel in common, but we have a gospel institution in common. So what does that mean? That means that our church practices, especially things that we enjoy every Sunday, are ways of preserving and embedding the gospel, right? So we, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is a living ritual embodiment of the gospel to us. Or Craig read to us uh, the assurance of pardon when we hear God's love and forgiveness uh, extended to us. Or our church leadership, the elders, are considered stewards of the gospel. They're supposed to protect it and pass it on to people. And so these institutions are ironically what actually end up unifying Christians. Right? We, we think sometimes that you know, the institutions are hardly very trendy and, and, um, and they might be what actually divides us, but the opposite is actually true. It's that gospel institutions are one of the things that unites us to other Christians. 
when I was reading this, it struck me as kind of humorous that um, Paul had to use the language of, I'm reminding you. <laughs> you know, when I think about things that I need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded where I put my keys, where I put my wallets, where I parked in the giant parking lot. This is the kind of things that I'm, I'm an absent-minded person. I forget this stuff all the time. And so Paul is kind of saying that, like, John's absent-mindedness is a lot of times how we react towards the gospel also. You know, it's, it's Sunday, it's fresh, it's new. Monday, we're still, it's on our minds, and, and by the time we get to Friday and Saturday, we're basically all atheists all over again. So we got we to gotta get it fresh every morning. And, you know, and so what Paul's engaging the church of Corinth saying, you know, look, this gospel is something that you actually need to be rooted in all the time. And he's giving us a clue to the truth that the gospel is not something that we graduate from. It's not like you need the gospel to become a Christian or only young Christians are, need the gospel, but it's actually this thing that we dive deeper into and we become more rooted in and convicted by and we treasure more and more. I've heard it put this one way, that the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not the, the simple things. It's actually the A through Z of the Christian life. It's everything to us. But if we know that the gospel tradition is something that's passed through tradition, excuse me, passed through institutions, it still doesn't tell us what this gospel actually is, which is what I want to consider for our next point. And to think about this, I want to read the rest of our passage to you, and then we'll think about what this actually means for us. This is in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles. It's interesting to think, what is Paul doing right here? He's... Um, uh, I don't think he's giving us an abstract theology. And I don't think he's having a little apologetic moment right here. I think what Paul is doing is telling a story. He's telling a series of events that happened. And uh, in particular, the, the events and moments surrounding the most critical parts of Jesus' life and ministry, which his time on the cross and his resurrection. Last year, I started spending some time reading in the Gospels, and before that, I was in seminary and spent a lot of my time reading Paul, and, and uh, I decided to switch to the Gospels, and I, I ended up reading uh, the Gospel of Mark first, and um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this, but the, the Gospel of Mark was my least favorite of the Gospels, and it was, it was the most simple, uh, most of the content was in the other Gospels, so you could read Matthew and get Mark at the same time, and, and so it was just not especially appealing, but I... I ended up reading it, and it just bothered me. It just really bothered me in a weird way. And it kind of sat with me, the type of stuff where you're like, I'm not even sure what bothers me, but I'm just kind of, it's like, it's like a load on your shoulders. And I'm like, whoa, that's never happened before. What's that about? And so I, I got I to read this again. And, and so I read it again, and it was like more of that. And in fact, I felt myself in the story. I felt like I, I'm on the road with Jesus walking to Jerusalem. I'm like, what is that about? I'm like, I've never felt like this about the Gospels. <laughs> I read it again, and um, I was moved. I was getting emotional over so many parts of the story, and I, I don't know. It was either, you know, it was, um, uh, I, I think what was happening was I was just being confronted by the Gospel story itself because the story is the Gospel. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think this confrontation that I was having with the Gospels is the kind of confrontation that Jesus would have with many people in the story, which is where he would be going about his business, teaching on something or, or you know, doing a miracle. And, and then he would kind of turn to somebody and he would say, who do you say I am? And he would, like, look them in the eyes. It's just crazy to think, you know, God himself is looking at you in the eye and he's saying, who do you say I am? But apparently it was hard to answer that question, actually. And so this gospel story has the same kind of impact because we're supposed to look at Jesus, the man of sorrows on the cross. We're supposed to look at the empty tomb and we're supposed to say, who do I say this man is? Who is he to me? And so because the gospel is the story and it's the story that confronts us that we need to wrestle with, I'm going to spend just a couple of moments walking through the story itself. Depending on which gospel you're reading, it either begins with his birth or his ministry, but they all end in the same place. Jesus is always looking towards Jerusalem. He'll be talking to people or laying on hands or whatever else he does, and then he'll turn his head and he'll look towards Jerusalem as if he has a kind of destiny wrapped up there. And the thing was, he would tell people and he would say, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die. And then nobody would get it. You know, we read it and it seems like the most clear language possible, yet nobody understood it. Jesus finally enters Jerusalem in an event we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is riding on a donkey. He's greeted by an enthusiastic crowd. Folks are waving palm branches and calling him blessed, and yet they're missing something. And what they're missing is that Jesus is both more exalted and more humble than they'll let him be. Israel had been occupied for about 100 years by now, and they were hoping for a liberator, and Jesus is more than this, and he's less than this. Jesus is coming to them as God himself, whose power is absolute and whose authority is cosmic. And yet he also comes riding in on a donkey. There would have been a number of different entrances Jesus had to Jerusalem, and there would have been one that was most fitting for uh, a royal figure to come in. He would be riding on a horse and have a big assembly, and yet Jesus came in through a side gate riding on a donkey. He came to make peace and not war. And he does something after this that I think is one of the most understated sentences in the entire gospel. It says he went into the temple, and he looked around, and it was late in the day, so he left. <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, it's very interesting because the temple is God's throne room. And what's being said is that the king has now arrived and he's coming to take up residence in his throne, in his uh, temple throne room. And if we look back to the origins of the temple and the tabernacle and how they all started, there was a promise attached to them. And it was said that through this system, God was going to share a life with his people. It actually used the language of walking with his people. He was going to give them part of his life and they would have a part of, uh, he would have a part of their life as well. But after years of compromise and betrayal and the paltriness of the second temple, it seemed that this promise had been lost. Yet the amazing thing is, God had not forgotten his promise. And here he is, God incarnate, literally walking in the temple. That week in Jerusalem, Jesus decides to spend some time with one of his friends, and he goes to the home of Simon the leper. And there it says that Mary, Jesus' friend, came to him and poured expensive oils all over his head. They were so expensive, uh, they cost a year's worth of wages. But what does Jesus say to her? This is amazing. 
He calls it beautiful. And you know what? This is the only place in the entire Gospels where Jesus calls something beautiful. It's amazing to think about. Out of all the things he'd seen, he'd seen sunrises and sunsets and art, and in his divinity, he knew everything that was happening, yet the one thing he thinks worth mentioning, one thing he thinks he wants to call beautiful is this act of love and adoration that this woman gave to him. And so why is this? And I think it's because this woman allowed him to do something that no one else would let him do. All of his friends, whenever he would talk about going to the cross, they would make excuses for it. They would explain it away. They would try and stop him. And yet this woman uh, saw his future, and she prepared the way for him. She prepared his body for his death. And so because she sees things so clearly, God calls this act of love beauty. After that, Jesus does another meal called the Lord's Supper. This is a Passover meal. And he's celebrating another story, the liberation of Israel from Egypt. And he's doing this. He's giving us a clue. He's saying, I'm coming to you as a liberator. And I'm on a mission to bring about a new kind of exodus. And I'm not going to be rescuing you from a pharaoh. I'm going to be rescuing you from all that's wrong with the world. And to see Jesus means to see him clearly in this light. It's on the next day that Jesus is with his friends. He's late at night. He's betraying. He's, excuse me, he's late at night praying with his disciples, and he ends up being betrayed by one of his own. It's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't run, but he embraces the injustice. He's later brought before a council of religious leaders who come up with all sorts of charges against him. And the scene is tense, and it's dripping with irony. Jesus, who was the judge of all things, who has the capacity to hold into account all people and things is now himself being judged. And Jesus takes it, and the council epitomizes what it means for someone to not see Jesus. Eventually, Jesus is brought before Pilate, and after that, he's given back to the religious leaders, and they prepare for the cross. They put a crown on his head, he's acknowledged as king of the Jews, and in his suffering, he experiences a kind of enthronement. Jesus is crucified on the cross while he's being mocked, and he still does nothing against those who are hurting them. And then someone catches someone, something, and it's the least expecting person in the entire story. It's one of his enemies. It's one of his executioners. And his executioner is at the base of the cross watching Jesus in agony and pain and covered in his own blood, and he has this epiphany. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Crazy. What, what, what about this moment would have caused this realization? No one else in the story, the, the disciples who were spending years with Jesus didn't understand this, and yet Jesus' own enemy is looking up at him and says, I see it now. This is Jesus himself, God in Jesus. And the truth behind it is this, is that in Christ's suffering, his glory is revealed. And his purple robes and thorn of crowns and lifting up on the cross are all a kind of enthronement. And that his kingdom and reign have come into the world through his suffering and humiliation. They're saying that all his suffering, in all of his suffering, he was made king. And that he was not only made king, but establishes the principles of his kingdom. That in sacrifice there is glory, that in humility there is power. Think about this. How did Caesar become king? 
became king through war, through violence, through conquering. And Jesus became king through the exact opposite, by losing himself, by letting his enemies crush him. And it's there that he made peace with his enemies and built his kingdom. The gospel say in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, it was finished, and then he died. And he tells us that the curtain of the temple was ripped in half. The curtain was a piece of fabric that was dividing the holy place from the holy of holies, where the ark was, where God's throne was. And do you know why it was ripped? It wasn't just ripped to give us access to God. It wasn't just ripped to undo the old temple system. It was actually ripped because Jesus himself was entering into the holy holies to offer atonement for us, both as a priest and sacrifice, saying that his royal blood would remove the guilt of his enemies. Jesus' body was buried, and his enemies and disciples had to spend the Sabbath without him. But on the first day of the week, two women go to visit his tomb, and they find it empty, and that Jesus himself had come back to life. And our passage from 1 Corinthians says he came back and visited with people. And that Jesus was the same old Jesus, but he was also something new. He'd become untouched by sin and death and pain. And what he promised to his followers that he would also make them into something new. And this, for Paul, summarizes the main events of Jesus' life, his cross and his resurrection. But what do we do with this story? This is a, a news, a report that we receive and hear and pass down, but what do we actually do with it? And I was recently reflecting on uh, the role of storytelling in my own family. Uh, I grew up in a family that loved telling stories, especially my dad, and they would usually happen in his office. And uh, I would go into his office, and he has tons of knickknacks and pictures and all sorts of stuff, and he had a story and a lesson for every single one of them. So you go hang out with him, he would grab something off the wall, and he would start telling a story about it. And one of the stories that uh, I remember most was uh, two paintings he had above his desk. And they were both of the USS Constitution, a, a Revolutionary War frigate. And uh, the first one was of the frigate in the harbor, and there's you know, blue skies and calm seas and all this. And then the next uh, one was of the, uh, the frigate out in the open water. And they were fighting another ship, and there was smoke and waves and turmoil and chaos. And, and I would uh, come into my dad's office, and we'd be talking, and then he would find a moment to kind of point up at the things, and he would say, we want life to be like this one right here. We want the calm of the harbor. And he would point at the next one, he would say, but actually, God made us to be warships, and we're supposed to be fighting on the open ocean. And I heard the stories probably a few dozen times <laughs> growing up. And, um, you know, for, for my dad, this was a way of passing down the family uh, beliefs and values, which for my dad, what he was trying to communicate was moral courage, uh, not shrinking from challenges, squaring off the life. And what I've noticed is I've kind of come to own these stories in some ways, and I even tell the same stories, or I tell stories that are like them. And I've actually got a little print above my desk, and it's... Um, of something much different, and I'll tell stories about it. And it's, interestingly enough, kind of the same kind of lesson. It's about the courage of facing life. And for me, it's the courage of facing yourself is uh, what it means to me. But same thing of, uh, of uh, using stories and uh, artifacts to tell lessons and, and pass on family values. And I think, I think we, just, we love stories. I love hearing stories. I love uh, good s storytelling and... Um, it's very interesting that the, to me that the gospel itself comes to us in the form of a story. 
you know, and it's a story about God becoming man and saving all things. And stories have this way of just getting us. You know, when I was reading the Gospel of Mark, they, it kind of just, that's what was happening there. I was encountering a story, and I was encountering a true story. And what we're asked to do is, is we're supposed to kind of wonder over the story, and we're supposed to be curious about it. And then we're supposed to feel the weight of it, and it's supposed to come to our minds. And then we're supposed to find it attractive and beautiful, and we're supposed to treasure it. And as we do this, we actually enter into the story. We inhabit it. And we also become followers of Jesus, taking up our cross and going with them to Calvary. And I think we become ultimately like this woman who adores Jesus, who pours out all of our love and devotion on Christ, and then his, uh, um, uh, his response to us is to call our love and adoration beautiful. That's our hope for this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks uh, for your great love, and uh, as it's displayed to us on the cross, for the power of your resurrection, and we pray that these stories would capture our minds and uh, be sealed in our hearts, and we pray this in your name and in your Spirit's power. Amen.